Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest this week is Martha Creek. And I met Martha a couple of months ago when she came to my town of Fairfield, Iowa and did a very lovely uh, session on the work by Byron Katie. Uh, Martha is a certified facilitator for the work and most people listening probably will have heard of Byron Katie. And in fact, about six months or so ago, I s filled out this long detailed form on Byron Katie's website submit, uh, asking to do an interview and they turned me down. But maybe after I've done you, you'll, you'll kind of <laughs> like, I'll be a stepping stone or something, <laughs> being able to do, interview Byron, or Katie rather. Uh, Martha is also a uh, serving uh, Unity Churches. She's in a ministry serving Unity Churches and over the last uh, week or two I've listened to a number of audios of Martha um, both in her capacity as a Byron Katie facilitator and as a Unity Church um, uh, advisor and also I've just started listening to a very nice um, uh, teleclass she gave on um, uh, Eckhart Tolle's book um, New Heaven and New Earth and all this stuff is available on Martha's website, which I'll be linking to from my website after this interview, and anyone listening can download it all and listen themselves. <clears throat> so welcome, Martha, and, and thanks for this opportunity. Thank you, Rick. I'm blessed to do it and, and just delight at what may come to us and through us, and I believe it's a blessing for the world, what you do and what you are, and that's my mission, too, to serve humanity. So here we go. Yeah. Here we go. Um, so one thing I heard in listening to you uh, talk to various people and do some interviews uh, is that you were born in Bug Tussle, Kentucky. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> it's on the border of uh, Tennessee, near just a rock's throw over from Tennessee. It's smack in the middle of the state, mm -hmm. and it's where the Beverly Hillbillies came from. So I have a claim to fame, and huh. you are on it. But you didn't strike oil. Uh, we haven't yet, and I'm really, <laughs> I'm really open to that. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder who named the town. They must have seen a couple of bugs tussling. And, that's the, that's the uh, report, and we mm. had T-shirts for a few years when I was kids that showed the tussle bugs, and they're actually dung beetles, and uh -huh. you can figure that out, uh, tussling right along. Huh. That's that's the reports. Now, tussling means they were fighting with each other, right? The bugs. Uh, or were that they just could be. Hmm. This was more like dung beetles, which was rolling dung um, to do whatever they do with that. Oh, okay, good. Because <laughs> when I first heard the name, I thought, well, those beetles weren't loving what is, you know, if they if they they had such a difference of opinion that they had a town named after it. <laughs> <laughs> just like humanity, we're not <laughs> loving what is yet. Most of yeah. us. Yeah. So, um, you know. I don't imagine that in Bug Tussle, Kentucky, there was a great wealth of opportunities for spiritual unfoldment, although there must have been local churches and all that you attended as a child. So maybe we could sketch out the course of your, you know, your spiritual trajectory. Yeah, you're right about it. There was a lot of churches, actually, churches on every corner, and my family didn't go to church. I was just really called to go to church. And I remember at three years old declaring out loud that, I'm going to be a minister, mm. and it was very frightening, startling, and shocking to my family because, uh, A, women are not ministers, mm. and B, um, it, there was no indicator that you would just self-ordain, 
So it's yeah. like uh, there was no way, no path to be seen about how that could actually be accomplished. And I got the neighbors to take me to church. I was right. that strongly called to go to church and to find that. And I had some radar about people as well and uh, some distinct memories as a child about not wanting to be in certain churches and it wasn't anything to do with the teaching it was more to do with the people that were there huh. and I had I had some kind of um, um, strange vibes from certain people that I found out later was really right on that it was a, a, one particular man for example that was actually actually molesting his children Ooh. And as even as a child, I had some awareness about uh, that. And I he was a ma- was, the minister of that church or a parishioner. He was he was a deacon, a deacon in the uh-huh, church, yeah. so like a, a lead of the church. Yeah. And I just kept looking around. I just asked him to. I got other neighbors that was going to other churches to come and get me. So, mm-hmm. and I had a very strong conviction about what was reality, which what I now call God. What was God? What is God? And, and what the, what is the reality of God? So even though I was hearing certain things, teachings through the church and their um, beliefs, I was very strongly convicted to my own. And I took the parts that seemed to work for me. And I, knew, I, I didn't lose myself in those teachings. I, I stayed really true to what I believed. Um, even This as is a, when you're a young child, five, six, seven, yes, eight, eight years yes, old. Yes. Even That's as interesting. A child. Boy, I didn't have a clue at that age of any of this, and I had to be dragged to church kicking and screaming each Sunday. Um, And uh, what was your conviction or uh, of what God was at that point? Yeah, I believe God is good. Um, God is good that we are a spark of that, so that we're inherently good, Mm -hmm. and we lose track of that. We lose awareness of that, and then. Uh, through that lack of awareness then we do very strange things based mm. on what we're seeking outside of ourself and actually believing that it's possible to find it outside of ourself and that it's the reality is it's it's who we are what we are all of what we are and that to look inward and to connect and commune with the essence of who we are uh, really works and to look outside of ourselves and to distract ourselves outside of ourselves leads us down some very interesting paths that are mostly painful and very confusing. So even as a young child, you had that conviction that that, that God was to be found within? Yes, and that God was all um, omnipotent, always present, mm-hmm. um, and, some, and, and then really enjoyed that as a child, just... Um, the elements, the earth, uh, the wind, the the smells, the whatever was here that I had some kind of notion that it was for me, that it that it was a gift to me, that the gift of life was precious, and that it that it was all for me. And you must not have read that or even been told that by anybody. This is just something that you innately knew. Is that right? That's that's how I would say it, or like a divine idea, and huh. that I I didn't I didn't from a thought like that I didn't vary from it I I actually believed it and then stayed true to believing that Um, the first scriptures I read were um, from the Bible uh, that was given to me by a Sunday school teacher and she just gave all of her Sunday school children a Bible and I actually read the Bible a bit and I was drawn to things the Psalms and uh, certain parables and stories that seemed to um, support what I was believing so Mm. I found quickly you know at probably about age 10 or 12 I found some um, what I considered a substantial um, indicators that what I was believing was what was true based on how I interpreted what the Bible said 
That's nice. I mean, there are certain, you know, spiritual teachers and authorities who have said that the purpose of scripture is not to sort of just give you a, uh, you know, a package of beliefs that you should, you know, just uh, accept blindly, but rather they should be a sort of a confirmation thing to, you know, confirm and, and supplement what you're actually experiencing, you know? Yeah, and that's that was my experience. And it was it was a very solid teaching for me too, the way that um it was presented, the stories that were told, the parables were very meaningful to me. Uh so it was it was easy for me, fairly easy for me to integrate that. Like this is a this is solid ground here. Like this is the way to live. Mm-hmm. Was there a fair amount of fire and brimstone being thrown at you at the same time? They, there there was, and I found it interesting, and I didn't have any effect of that. I don't recall ever being afraid of that. I huh. simply did not believe it. That's interesting, and you say it's cool that you, as a, such a young child, you were you had that level of discrimination that you were able to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff and, you know, take what you need and leave the rest. Yeah, it got interesting, too, because I was known um, as being like a fearless child, mm-hmm. um, that things didn't really frighten me. And even to the point of I I, I, it, I didn't believe in death. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't believe that death is the end of anything. So right. I had less identification than some. And I remember an example of that is my father was very much afraid of fire, mm-hmm. the thoughts of fire, and then of storms and tornadoes and wind and things and he would wake us up as a child our family and ask us to go to the cellar Mm -hmm. which is an underground place that our fruit was stored a canned fruit and vegetables for the second coming and (laughs) I when I just when he woke me up one time to go I just said I'm not going to go was there a Um, storm coming or was he just yeah 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 and it was a strong enough no for lack of a better way of putting it, that he didn't question me. Hmm. He didn't try to convince me. And what happened instead is from that day forward, the family never went in that cellar again. Interesting. You kind of set the trend. I did. Or it did, yeah. A lot of times when I hear stories like this, you know, of like your proclivities of, uh, you know, with such a clear conception of what God is and such a strong conviction, and then your father's fear of fire and tornadoes and all, I can't help but think of, past lives you know with you know certain tendencies ingrained in us that we bring into this one yeah and I'm open to that too I don't have any explanation for it um and that that seems right to me I I don't explore I've been very open to past lives I've had several people to offer um their insights about past lives I've had and all that and I find it very interesting and it even seems right meaningful to me and I don't spend much time uh, examining that because this life is a full-time job for me. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's just it's sort of an interesting theory, but I wouldn't dwell on it too much myself either. Um, so, as you moved into your teenage years, did you get into any of the usual teenage confusion and you know identity crisis? You just cruised right not. through, huh? I did, and I was um, just an old soul, considered wise. I recall uh, people, even my high school principal. When there's a story about um, us having a fire drill in our school and we went out, we had to evacuate for the drill and it was almost over and our next period, our next class period was basketball and that was mm-hmm. my real love, sports and activities and things and I just had an idea, let's go on and get dressed you know, and get ready for basketball because this is going to be over in a little bit. So when 
we went back in the building, we didn't report to the class that we had left. Uh-huh. We were now ready for the next class. Mm-hmm. And the uh, principal came over the intercom and actually said these words. Would Martha Creek and her little congregation <laughs> please come to the office? <laughs> so that that's kind of an indicator of that, that there was a following of some sort, that there was a calm about me and... Um, and um, something that was attractive to people that 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 was not afraid and that was what they would call very positive thinking, even mm-hmm. Pollyanna-ish and things like that, that that was the way I was living my life out. And I'm glad you said I, that because, I'm sorry, go ahead. I recall asking my mother once, I said, you've never told me what time to be home. I found mm-hmm. that so shocking that people were told what time to come home and mm-hmm. I wasn't. And she said, I would. I've never had to tell you what time to come home. Yeah, like because you just came. I just went home. Yeah. Yeah, it was funny that you Brent you brought up that story about your little congregation because I was going to ask you whether you know having s- such strong convictions and you know really being different than people in many respects because not many people think that way made you sort of an oddball who didn't have many friends. But now you're saying it actually it attracted like, people to you. Yes. Yes, it was the opposite of that, and and I was uh, friends with people that it did make sense to be friends to. Uh, so there was, I didn't have gender kind of issues. I didn't have socioeconomic things. I felt as comfortable with somebody that had so-called everything as someone who didn't have too much. I felt a very sense of, uh, very much a sense of equality, and oneness with people that really didn't make any sense. Did you find yourself coming to the defense of kids who were being picked on and, you know, that kind of thing that happens in high school? I did. And in a calmer way, though, it was more like a mediator, mm-hmm. you know, and just and, and there's there's evidences of that, of the, I, of actually breaking up scuffles and fights and things. Huh. And it was very easy for me. It, it, it There was never any question about whether to do it. It was just like walking in and going, stop this. Huh. And I, I didn't. I didn't have any kind of setup in my mind that one was right or one was wrong or somebody caused it. It was just like, stop this here. So it was like what a teacher or um, um, somebody trained would have done, and I did it. I just did it as a child. And there's a story about my uncle. We lived and worked on a farm, and we worked in tobacco. And going up this windy road to the tobacco field one day, that my brother driving a tractor the tractor hit a tree, jarred the wagon. My uncle fell off the wagon under the tractor wheel. The tractor rolled back on top of his body. Huh. I jumped off the wagon and held the tractor wheel and kind of took my foot and raked him out from under it um, and then turned around. And I was 10 or 12 years old, and I looked around at everybody there and said, you do this, you do that, you go get the car. You helped me pick him up. You and then we loaded him in the car. I looked at the driver, which was my mother, and said, "Drive him directly to this hospital. Uh-huh. Do not stop for anything. Just get him straight to there." And looking back on that, it's like it, that would make no sense that you're running like triage for something um, when you're a kid, so to speak. And I just had a sense of calm and a sense of a clarity of my mind that's not fogged over or kind of whacked out in a in a, some kind of crisis situation like that that was I was able to have a presence and functioning about me that 
I have no words to express the gratitude for. Oh, that's very, yeah, very fortunate. And you're not saying that you had like superhuman strength, like they hear mothers lifting cars off their children, that you stopped the tractor by virtue of that. You're just saying that you just kind of had a lot of presence of mind and were able to sort of orchestrate the... Yes, so yeah. it was so it was not superhuman, just enough that you could actually stop a tractor from rolling just with my strength. I'm I'm a big and strong person. Yeah, but so, a twelve-year-old girl can't stop a tractor, you know. By well, it's the tractor was stopped. It was just rolling. Oh, so, so you somehow like, you're able to apply enough force to keep yes, it from rolling any yes, further. Yes, uh -huh. yes, yes, yes. Uh -huh. So okay. not I don't consider it superhuman though. To right. answer your question, it. It was more like a common sense something. If your mind's clear enough to yeah. actually see like see that and then respond in that way. Hmm. So it sounds like you never went through a '60s drug phase like many of us did. I was born in 1960. Oh, and okay. So <laughs> you're much too young for this. Well, it's actually I, the, I the, the drugs phase started then and never stopped really. So, but it sounds like you missed it. <laughs> well, and the truth is, I've never taken a drug. I've never had a drug, um, like I've had Advil or yeah. something like that, rarely, um, and nothing nothing really outside of that. That's great. Um, I'm saying it's great because this is stuff that I, I mean, a lot of what you're saying is the antithesis of who I was and what I went through when I was a kid and a teenager and everything else. So it's refreshing to hear somebody who managed to bypass all that. Well, and it was it's interesting because it didn't really come to me to do it. And then when it when I would actually consider it, it was like um, the answer was just a solid no inside of me. Yeah. This is a no, and I rationalized it back then by as my, I was had a lot of energy and would often you know I didn't sleep very much naturally. Right. And if there was a substance of some sort that would extend that, that I felt like I would be highly addictive to something if i could actually find something that was that where i didn't have to sleep at all that mm -hmm. sleeping was such a drag to me mm. as there was so much i wanted to do and be so much life to have and that was the thought really that stopped me from doing it a lot of times is that if if there was really some power in some drug that would prevent me from sleeping that i would probably be highly addicted to that and yeah that seemed like a good enough reason not to do it it, it didn't have any real moral or ethical considerations I did I never saw it as that um, it was really just more practical yeah I mean ultimately I think all it all boils down to physiological considerations with those things and it has very serious diminishing returns you know? mm -hmm. a couple, couple days you might not have slept and then you'd pay for it yeah and um, I feel I feel very blessed about that that we've all got our things you know uh, and yeah. what our crazy confused thinking will take us to and I feel like that that was grace in some way that that just wasn't my thing. So, at what point did you, um, you know, start actively pursuing actual spiritual practices of some kind? Because I know you've been through well, a few. Yeah, even as a child, I I can I felt like I I prayed daily, meditated, mm -hmm. I read the Bible. Um, I had a reference for what was um, how I wanted to live, who I've come here to be. And then as an adult, I started exploring things of transcendental med meditations, and mm -hmm. I went to mystery schools, and I've, I've done various rituals and practices and things over the years, uh, and still ongoing in that. Um, mm -hmm. Loving what is is actually a spiritual practice for me. Loving yeah. what is and questioning the inquiry of the mind is a meditation, mm -hmm. and it's, um, it's, the, it's the 
most significant spiritual practice that I've had because it absolutely works for me 100% of the time in 100% of the situations. And in my belief, it will work for 100% of people that really do want to open their mind and really do want to get to the other side if, uh, to see what the truth is. Shall we get into that now, or would, is there anything of significance in your kind of biological, autobiographical account here that, um, you know, such as the, some of these practices and all that real highlights that are worth mentioning? Some find it interesting because um, from that three-year commit, three-year-old commitment I made when I was 40 years old, I'd had I'd had quite a success in the world as far as corporate life and startup businesses and achievement mm. and all that, and I was absolutely committed to end all that when I turned 40, mm. which was in the year 2000. So mm -hmm. I started a, a bigger a search for spiritual groundedness and even seminaries. I looked at seminaries and where I'm going to go get official training. Mm -hmm. and credentialing to be a minister when I was 40. So I left um, what what most people would work their whole life to achieve and to have in the way of title and position and money. Um, I left it just clean, a clean break from that at age 40 to go do what I felt like what was my life's calling to do. Mm -hmm. And I felt like every single thing I'd done in my life, though, was preparing me for, for what I was going to do when I was 40. And even though I was in a corporate environment, um, I always felt like I was applying spiritual principles, which I attributed to the success that I had as a result of, of living it out and from a spiritual realm that I was approaching everything from that way. That's great. So you, you uh, essentially you were able to retire at about 40 and... Uh, you know, it, and and just begin to dedicate yourself to your your true love in life. It it's true, yeah. yeah. And then I started yeah. studying mediation skills, conflict resolution, and that really came from looking around in the in these ministries and these organizations, not just churches, but in organizations. And what I saw as a lack of preparedness that people had, particularly ministers. And, and spiritual people in these organizations that they that they were not prepared for what was what was going on in the field and including myself I had a naivete about that that was shocking to me that I thought if I could have the success that I'd had in the corporate world that by the time I got into the, these deeper spiritual venues and organizations like churches where we're all such nice people <laughs> and spiritual people that it was going to be like a you know just a just a amazing ease and flow and it, it was uh, the opposite of that so mm. I, I was really naive and shocked about what woundedness apparent woundedness and and um, distress and suffering and um, insanity that exist even even in our churches and what it was like for leaders to to try to navigate that and so that became my ministry that I started studying um, these practices, taking these practices, including uh, conflict resolution, mediation skills, communication skills, and uh, more effective ways of being together, particularly when the heat's turned up and when we're in crisis situations or not getting what we want, to actually be with them with a great deal more presence and functioning than what I've seen people be able to do. Hmm. And at what point did you finally meet Byron Katie? Um, I'd say around 2004. Okay. I don't. I don't have much of a reference for time or years. About um, seven years ago, maybe. Yeah, and I actually invited her to come to Louisville, Kentucky, and she was not available. Mm. 
-hmm. to teach, to do a workshop, to lead and facilitate a workshop. And I got a very clear inner message that was you do whatever you want Byron Katie to do. Hmm. So I started teaching workshops and seminars straight away without any training whatsoever. Other on the work. Than on the work. And and I say training like I mean formal training. I was practiced in the work. It was a spiritual practice for me. I'd read the book several times. Had you been to see her at this point on some I retreats? Had not, and, no, oh, no. Okay. I'd never, never seen her until mm-hmm. then. And uh, after doing the workshops and seminars myself and, and facilitating people, like really sitting with people and facilitating them, I eventually went to the school, the nine-day school, and then I've been back uh, five or six or more times since then and other weekend intensives and and various other ways of, of working with her to move the work out in the world and, and still do that, still will do that. So, um, you know, you've, you've had quite a potpourri of different practices and things you've looked into and explored. What is it about the work that, you know, makes it for you, uh, you know, the best thing or the, you know, the most effective teaching? Uh, it works 100% of the time. Uh-huh. It doesn't cost anything. It requires no devices. It requires no person. It doesn't have any dependency on another person. And it is just four simple questions. Even one of the four simple questions actually taken in and answered um, has the power to to clear the mind. Even the title of her first book, Loving What Is, <laughs> if you if all you read was that title, you can get quite a quite a bit of benefit out of it. I think if you understand what she means by it. Well, I think that's right, Rick, and I think there's also, and even for me, uh, there's there's some appall at the, at the at the title also. Like loving what is is too hard, Martha. Right. Loving what is is too hard. You're asking too much of me, and a I'm not asking anything of anybody. Mm. Uh, and do I love what is? It's like seldom, rarely, often I don't. Mm-hmm. And I'm closer to loving what is than I've ever been in my life. So I think it's a direction that I'm headed in. And I think it's lofty to think that we go from living from these eons, old ways of being um, and the suffering we've seen since recorded history to loving what is. And it's it's for me, it's not a spontaneous arrival somewhere, but it's absolutely a direction that I'm moving in. And mm-hmm. the more I practice and the more I question what I'm thinking, then the more I love what is, and at least I'm neutral to what is. Yeah. I think uh, people, when they first hear that title or that phrase, might think, oh, well, does that mean you love rape? And, you know, you love Auschwitz? Uh, you know, you love malaria? I mean, there's there's all kinds of horrible things in this world that... Um, why would there? Why would anyone want to love them? You know, they, they should be opposed. They should be fought. They should be changed. You know, they should be cured. Um, if Roosevelt and and Churchill had just said, "Oh, we sort of love what not what Hitler was doing. We'll just kind of let him do his thing," the world would have been a very different place today. So per, perhaps you could, um, you know, respond to that objection. I'm sure it's not a very informed one if one really understands what the work is all about. But uh, it's an objection which I'm sure you've heard before. It is routine, and so it's a question not of me of whether I love it or not. It simply mm-hmm. is what is. So I don't love rape or war yet, and I understand that it's what is. And opposing mm-hmm. it creates more of it. It perpetuates itself. So to the degree that I hate war, then I make war on warmongers. I make war on people that do war and that will not end the war in the world to do that. 
doesn't mean that if you are about to shoot somebody and I can actually stop you shooting somebody, I absolutely would. And it, not because it's right or wrong, because I'd hate to see you do that to yourself. You mm -hmm. shooting someone, I don't would hate to have to live with it myself. I'd hate to be the killer. So then I believe that that would be hard on you too. So if I can stop it, I will. And it, it's not, I don't run the world yet. So <laughs> I can't do what I cannot do. And um, I've learned from working with people that have been raped just this week, actually, just a few nights ago, a lady said that she was raped and abused. And when I ask a simple question like, I was raped and abused, speaking for her, what does that mean? You were raped and abused, and that means that. And she said, I'm worthless. Hmm. I'm worthless. <clears throat> There's something wrong with me. And then the tears start because... Even after the pain of the rape and the abuse are over, 40 years of that, the pain has not, it's all over. And the deep pain, the pain that's what's really running our show, is caused by a thought that we've not questioned, like, I'm worthless, or there's something wrong with me, I don't deserve love. And she's piling an interpretation on top of something which it doesn't, doesn't need to be there. Ever. And that's really the pain and suffering. So even a concept from your what you just shared with horrible things happen in the world. It's like mm -hmm. we've made that up. We've looked at everything we don't agree with and said it's horrible. When we don't get our way, we say that's horrible. Now, that's us calling it that. So when we give it a meaning that is horrible, then we get the experience of horrible. And until we question that uh, what good has come out of it, what good if the universe is friendly if God is good then what good has come from those horrible things mm -hmm. and then it sends the mind in a different direction that does not deny that that was horrible or that we wouldn't have preferred that we certainly wouldn't want that in anybody's life and the reality is it's here it occurs and it's been happening since recorded history and we're still telling ourselves things like it shouldn't happen mm -hmm. it shouldn't have happened and to the degree that we oppose reality, we lose reality rules, like it or not, and we're then disabled, paralyzed, mortified, afraid, panicked, terrorized, shut down, powerless, pitiful, victimized, fill in the blank, as a result of believing a concept like that. But I presume this doesn't um, disempower a person. If you were a doctor, for instance, it would not mean that you, it would not eliminate your motivation to say go to Africa and, and help people who are suffering from AIDS or malaria or something. You might throw yourself totally into that, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. It, That's exactly yeah. it, Rick. It's the opposite of disempowerment. It's like your mind is clear. You've got all the energy that we have spent arguing with what is. 100% of that energy can be put toward doing something about what we can do something about. And if it's people that are hungry, feed them. If it's people that are distressed, uh, give them a blanket, ap apply medicine to them. Um, so we, we're then freed up to, to be to be love in action, actually. Yeah. And a few minutes ago, you said, you know, with regard to war, the solution wouldn't be to, to fight it because that stops more wars. But wouldn't you acknowledge, like, you know, take my World War II example, you know, the, the Allies basically had to step up and uh, oppose Hitler militarily 
because otherwise he was just going to keep running rampant all over well, Europe. Well, absolutely, and that's an that's an insane thinking that would cause something like that. So you're not dealing with somebody or something in its right mind. So when it's when it's somebody's not coming from their right mind, then we've got to have a boundary of some sort and to say you've got to stop that, and regardless of what it takes to say that must be stopped. Yeah, there's a there's a saying in India: it takes a thorn to remove a thorn. <laughs> you know? um, yes. Sometimes you need a thorn. Exactly, and which means that's that's part of our role here too. You know that we're gonna we're gonna it's not one or the other. You know, it's not is it going to be just that or just that? It's going to be both and, and I think that's going to free up some of our suffering is to understand that it's not one or the other in these situations, that is there war? Yes. And there's, is there a possibility of no war? Yes. And instead of making it good and bad, it just is what is. And yeah. that in itself is a little less suffering. It just is. It's so, it's just not, it's not good or bad. And the mind has to draw the line and say, this is good, this is bad. And then it has to be right. So it gathers evidence to support itself, and then we're further and further into believing it instead of questioning it. Like, what if we didn't have a concept, you know, of something's good or bad? And mm -hmm. an example in my own life is I got a diagnosis of cancer a few years ago, and I absolutely did not mind. When I got the call that I had cancer, I didn't have a reference for it was bad. It just mm -hmm. is. And I had less identification than even I knew that I didn't believe that it was my breast, so to speak, when I would hear them say, it's your breast. It's like, I didn't have a reference for that. Like, it's it's not my breast. Like, it's, it's not out of a denial or something, but it's like the body is a temporary something or other here. And when the body's, as the body changes, I don't look like I did when I was one year old. I don't look like I did just two years ago. So the body's having its own life, you know, it's doing what it's come here to do. And mm -hmm. it's not to do with who I am. I don't pick what happens and then there's no war in that. And then I can just follow the directions. You know, it's like, here's a cancer in your breast and here's what you do about that. And if it feels right and made sense to me, that's what I follow. Yeah, it's like if your tra car's transmission blows out, it's not you that's blowing out, it's your vehicle that's damaged, exactly. you know, get the vehicle fixed. Yes, that's another ex perfect example of that too, Rick. When we, even when you hear the word my, mm -hmm. like, you know, if we hear somebody else's car got scratched, this is from Eckhart Tolle's work, you know, mm -hmm. if you hear somebody else's car got scratched, it's like, oh, you know, that's too bad. Then it's like, my car got scratched. And it's like, oh, wait a damn here. <laughs> that's a different story. My car, my car, my body. So we have a big reaction when we think it's my body. You were saying that, you know, things are not so much good or bad. They just are what they are. And, you know, you love them as they are. Um, but how does that relate to the idea of having preferences? You know, like if you go into a restaurant or something, uh, there's one food, you know, perhaps that you know you're going to enjoy, or even forget restaurants. I mean, at home, you know, there's certain things you like, you cook those for yourself. And there's certain things your dog likes, you wouldn't eat those. <laughs> you know, we do as human beings have preferences. Yeah, it's right. So a couple of things I want to clear up in is that um, this notion that I um, don't see things as good or bad is, is not really true. I'm not there yet. 
uh, Rick. So I still will have an experience of not liking something. And I, I'm quicker now to catch my mind calling something bad. And I don't believe it much anymore. So even if mm -hmm. the mind says that's bad, I'm quicker to catch that. So with enough practice, I'm less likely to kind of go down that path. So I'm not there yet. It, it is a, it's a direction I'm headed in. And I have got a real more much more solid foundation of in your case of food like I can think I'm going to prepare a food for example that I've, I've liked I may have liked most of my life and I can prepare it believing that it's going to turn out a certain way and actually taste it or put it in my mouth and it wasn't what I had in mind mm -hmm. for whatever reason I, I, I may not like it and if I'm attached to liking it or if I'm believing that it's what I've got to eat or it's what I'm supposed to eat and I'm not really liking it, then there's a big internal war there hmm. versus just accepting what is and that for whatever reason, I, what I used to like, I don't like anymore. And that's been my case that certain things I ate for a lot of years have left me that I don't prefer them anymore. And that if I... Um, think I know how something's going to turn out, I'm absolutely insane. There's mm -hmm. no way to know a future that doesn't exist. So I can say I can cook this egg the same way I've cooked it always, and I cannot know how it's going to turn out. <laughs> and if I'm attached to how it's going to turn out, then I just won't have much peace because then when it doesn't turn out the way I like or prefer, then um, I have a little tantrum. Yeah, and, and if you burned it, you could always cook another one. Yes. Well, if there is another one, right. so then the mind has the mind has a lot of conditions put on things. There has mm. to be a certain kind of egg or a certain size egg, and it's got to turn out a certain way, and it's it's got itself set up um, quite substantially to always get what it wants. And then when it doesn't, and that's the bottom line to it, really. I think, Rick, what happens in us when we don't get what we want, regardless mm. of what it is, and if we think that something's right or wrong or we should have gotten A and we got B, where does it leave us? Hmm. And it's not much of a life for me to um, think that I know how things ought to be because it leaves me too much gap in my peace and I'm more interested it's um, I'm more interested in having peace regardless of how things turn out. Yeah. There's a couple lines from the Gita come to mind. One is you have control over action alone, never over its fruits. That's one. And another is satisfied with whatever comes unasked beyond the pairs of opposites. Um, so it's like, you know, you you have control over this moment, or you appear to anyway, but not over the, f the outcome, you know. And so whatever outcome comes, you didn't have control over that. So you're satisfied with whatever comes unasked beyond the pairs of opposites. Exactly. And to the degree that I can live that out, uh, that is... That is my interest, and that's very, very exciting to me um, to, to experience that and to actually believe that um, that is possible. And when I don't do it, I return as quickly as I can. Yeah, and that kind of leads us into the work itself, um, the four questions and the turnaround and all that, because that's a tool that you've found very valuable for inculcating this way of, of uh, behavior, this way of being. You told I'd love to go right into that, and you told me offline a description of um, humility that I'd love to hear again. If you're well, that's right. You know, uh, we just had a little glitch, Martha and I, where I forgot to resume the pause button after we ha had some little interruption, and the 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 line was that um, 
it was Marshi Mahashyogi actually who defined it this way in his commentary on the Gita. He said, uh, humility is the quality of not insisting that things happen any particular way. I mean, often uh, the word humility is used to connote sort of a self-deprecation, you know, oh, I'm just a miserable slug, you know, and I'm, I'm nothing. And, but he, what he was saying is it's more of a, you know, again, not insisting that things happen every way, any particular way, not sort of superimposing your ego on the flow of events and, and trying to sort of, as you, I've heard you say many times, not trying to do God's job. You got it. And that's that's what it led me, that my definition of humility had come somewhere along the way of just continuing to loosen and loosen and loosen my opinions. And it doesn't mean that I don't have one. I'm just less and less invested in them and less and less attached to them so that mm. I can say, you know, are you going to vote A or B? And it's like I vote A. And I don't think that it um, means anything. It was... yeah. It, it, or at least it, it doesn't mean that all the people who vote B are a bunch of idiots, you know? I mean, ever, just... <laughs> ever, exactly. Or yeah. wrong, which is right. idiots equals wrong, which is how the mind's drawn the line. Like, I'm, and which is usually, um, I, I, it's not usually, I'm right, you're wrong. My yeah. way is the better way. My way is the right way. Or if the coin turns up, I, like I am a miserable worm of the earth. Or <laughs> Well, whatever. you know, there are a lot of wars have been fought in which people on both sides felt that God was on their side, you know. Of uh, course. And so, you know, I would say either you're going to say God's on no sides or God's on all sides, but it's not going to be one side or the other. Uh, that's what I believe, too, <laughs> that God is, God is there, yeah. Mm. Something created us. Something is breathing us. Something is um, in charge here. Yeah, and he's breathing the the you know the tiger as well as the gazelle, and you know the murderer as well as the victim. And I mean everything is being animated by that same divine force. Absolutely. What else could be possible? Yeah. So maybe we could. S have you ever been married? I was married to the only person I dated. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's nice. Well, that that again is like symptomatic of your your you know <laughs> your certainty and conviction in life as, at a young age. Well, it's actually the opposite of that. That was oh. the there's been about twice in my life, and I'm really glad you went into this, Rick, because mm -hmm. there's a couple times in my life where I left myself. What does I that left mean? My, oh, you got blurred over. I got blurred over. Uh -huh. I left myself. I left my conviction, and mm. one of it was when I got married. I got married mm. when I was 18 years old, and I never wanted to. I mm. did not believe uh, to do that, and I uh, I got blurred over, and I left myself. I lost myself in uh, some kind of standard or norm or um, um, just a con state of confusion, I would call it, and actually mm. got married. And I stayed married for five years, so I was mm -hmm. with somebody for about eight years total uh, as a child, as a kid, as an eighteen-year-old. And mm -hmm. I've I've not been married since that time. And did you have any children? I didn't, and mm -hmm. that was another conviction that I had as a child that I would not have children. Um, so I didn't I didn't waver from that, even under a great deal of pressure uh, from a lot of peers, family, and and a husband actually. To have children, and it was an absolute no for me. Mm. And and marriage too had been a no. It wasn't that you married the wrong guy; it's that you hadn't wanted to get married. Period. Right? I didn't want to get married. Period. Uh -huh. Yeah, I didn't want to get married. Period. And then, 
uh, and that's an example of this belief system because even though I didn't want to do that and did, I would not end it based on a belief that was very simply, if you make your bed, you've got to lay in it. Now, that's been generations old and handed down, so divorce is wrong, mm -hmm. and you kind of did this, so you're stuck with it. And that was an example of how a, one belief that you don't question will absolutely paralyze you from doing what you know is the kindest, most intelligent, caring thing you can do for yourself and for another person. That I absolutely was was able to get a divorce from that man because I believed that it was unkind to him not to do it. Right. That I believe for me, I could have stuck it out and just lived like that. And what what kept me from doing it was I, it was not kind to him to be in a marriage uh, with someone who did not want to be married. Did you see it as a possible course of events that you would stay married and that um, difficult as it was, the difficulty in itself would be evolutionary for you? Or was was it just so incompatible that that would have not been an, you know, a viable it, it, it possibility? Wasn't, it, it was viable. Uh, it was viable. And I it was... Um, it just felt dishonest. I yeah. don't know the word for it actually, but it was, it was not. Uh, it was a dishonest thing to do. Would be to mm -hmm. stay, but to be stay married. It was not integral. Right. Uh, and and therefore the the um, the war in me was was too much. Yeah. Did your husband end up remarrying? And is he a happier yes. man now? Uh huh. Uh, I so. I don't know what he, what his life is like in his yeah. heart and his mind. Right. Um, I have a strong belief that. Um, it's better than it would have been otherwise. Yeah, good. All right. Um, so, uh, 2004 or so, you met Byron Katie. You started actually, you know, teaching the work or facilitating little workshops with it before you had even trained with her or even met her, just on the basis of reading the book and all. Um, but at a certain point, you went deeper and got more formal training. Um, so, I have a kind of a sense of how the work works because I've read her books and everything but a lot of people listening might not know anything about it and we keep referring to it so maybe we better talk about that a little bit and so people know what we're talking about I'm delighted to okay I want the work out in the world so anyway it can move I like that yeah so um, why don't you lay it out for us the, the basic points of it it's there actually are some pithy little points that that you know summarize it and that'll give people a sense of what it is well it's a very simple technique of four questions to question your mind mm -hmm. so any thought that you have any thought that becomes a belief that you have that causes you stress you can write down that thought or ask these questions to yourself or be facilitated in these questions to see if what you're believing is true and um, an example is if I have a thought that somebody is unkind to me, I ask me, is can I absolutely know that that's true, mm -hmm. that they're unkind to me? And then, well, yes, could be the but, answer. But the word absolutely is pivotal there. It is to some of us, not mm -hmm. always, Rick, but it could be. That's a, uh -huh. that's a sign that you've actually questioned your mind a bit that yeah. it would be pivotal in you. That's not always the case. Huh. So the question, the answers to questions, the first question is actually, is it true? And then the answer is yes or no. And there's no other answer to questions one or two, yes or no. And the mind will want to go off and go, yeah, but, yeah, but, 
and oh but if you only knew and it's like that's not the work the work is simply here's the question and then it's either yes or no I'd have a hard time answering yes or no at that point because I would say, well, yeah, but not entirely. I mean, I can see to some extent that it's not true, so how can I answer yes or no? Yes. And well, that leads to the second question. Well, it does, and it's a just it will also is a demonstration to yourself of the wiliness and and the uh, um, slyness even of the mind, the conditioning of the mind to not just land on an answer even when you hear. Rick, the answer is yes or no, that we absolutely cannot just say yes or no. We, it's very difficult to just land on yes or no, as simple as it sounds, because the mind's got to be right. So it's got to go out and rationalize it, justify it, explain it. And that's really the internal war is all that uh, mental gyration. It's, it's, it's not what's happening. It's all the, the mental gyration that goes with it. So it, it's question one is, is it true? she's unkind to you question two is can you absolutely know that to be true that she's unkind to you question three is how do you react when you think the thought she's unkind to you and then the answer is whatever the answer is it's often things like well I get avoid her I gossip about her I teach her a lesson I give her the look I may cut off from her. Um, so it's like, wow, that's how I react when I think and believe somebody's unkind to me. So the short answer is when I think and believe somebody's unkind to me, then I'm unkind to them. So it's not hard to see with much of a look that I'm doing exactly what it is I don't want somebody else to do to me or out in the world. Question four then is who would you be if you didn't have the thought, she's unkind to you. Who would you be without the thought, she's unkind? And, you know, people have their own experience of it. It could be more focused, freer, calmer, saner, more balanced. And uh, the work, I think, uh, some people um, that haven't taken the work as deeply as possible would give off an answer like peaceful calm kinder and it's one thing to answer the question like that and it's an entirely different thing to actually experience your answer hmm. so to say that you're calm or calmer is one thing to actually experience calm and calmer is a different matter and I think that's where we fall short with the work and the power of the work is not to actually ask the question, answer the question, and experience the answer. And I think that's another level to the work. It seems like to experience the answer, your perspective would have had to have shifted quite a bit by that time in order for you to really you know, yes. arrive at that. Yeah. Yes. So it's, it's less made up and more experienced. And then there's a great power in that from my experience. Right. And people's and, perspectives don't always just turn on a dime. Sometimes it, there's a lot of conditioning. It takes a while to unravel it. Very seldom turn on a dime. Yeah. Right. Even if we've got a sense of it, because the mind is infinite. It's very quick. So it'll come, it'll come in even if you're saying calm and going, well, yeah, but she better not do that or she better not do that. And if she does that one more time, and there was that one time. And so it's very quick to uh, fight back, even when you're questioning and getting a sense of what it would be like, heaven. How do I react when I think she's unkind? Hell, 
How, who would I be without the thought heaven and we'll still go back to hell over and over and over again yeah. and then it's powerful to see that as I question she's unkind to me with the thought that she's unkind to me I suffer mm-hmm. without the thought I don't now it's then that's very clear that she's not my problem now this freed me the day that I really got uh, that people are not my problem that if there's a problem here it's thinking so my thinking is what was causing all of that not somebody not some person and then and then that applies across the board when people stop being the matter with us so who's the matter with me <laughs> and how much we've lived that out over our whole life who's my problem and when who's my problem doesn't exist anymore then you got a direct shot to working with your thinking which is the cause of all the suffering and Eckhart Tolle's words are along the lines of the work is like a razor sharp sword that cuts Mm. right through the illusion that there's anything problematic here but the thinking Mm. so then we have a thought we write it down we ask these four questions and then we turn it around and when I have a thought she's unkind to me one of the turnarounds is I'm unkind to her and I've already seen that from question three how do I react when I think she's unkind to me I see that 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 I do that also another turnaround is I'm unkind to myself so if I want unkindness to stop in the world then I've got to stop it right here where it started which is in my own experience in my own mind and in the way I treat me and others so to the degree that I'm unkind to me then I'm also going to be unkind out into the world Hmm. Um, I also often turn it around with what's the opposite of unkind is kind now this takes a radically open mind or a willingness for your mind to open to look at how is the same person that we told ourselves sometimes our whole life we told ourselves she's unkind that we start to open the mind up a little to see is it possible that she's also kind Mm mm-hmm where's one example in our life that she actually was kind to me and then we can start to find one little way that she was kind and then you can find two ways and three ways and four ways and to the degree that we send our mind in that direction then it actually has a new balance to it a a re um, calibration if you will Mm. so we're not as far off we're not as insane we're not as far off the center it's not a black and white universe is it Uh, not that I know of <laughs> I mean, there's always, you know, there's always gradations and spectrums and shades of gray and good yeah. mixed in with the bad and vice versa. Well, and that's wholeness in itself. Like if we yeah. d- if we didn't have the line drawn down the middle and saying this is good and this is bad or this is right and this is wrong, mm-hmm. and we understand it's not one or the other, it is right. one and the other. This is key, and then to the degree that we get that that it's one and the other. What would we react to? Yeah, I mean, there's so many examples of where people try to make everything black and white. I mean, you know, Democrats are good, Republicans are bad, abortion is bad, you know, uh, or abortion is good, or, you know, I mean, there's so so many issues that occupy so much of our news in this day and age that are just, you know, people shouting from polarized perspectives, whereas it's really a much more of a, you know, integrated mosaic of all kinds of qualities and and it's so hard to um, you know categorize anything in absolute terms 
Yes, and to any degree that we do, it's all made up. Yeah. yeah. And then we are we've lost touch with the fact that we made it up, and then we're <laughs> we're reacting to what we imagined, and the meaning that we've given something. We're reacting to that meaning, not what is. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I I kind of interrupted you, I guess, because there's more than just those four questions. There's a there's the have we done the turnaround yet did you mention uh-huh. that? the turnaround the, yeah the turnarounds were she's unkind to me turns around to she's kind to me turns mm-hmm. around to she's not unkind to me and then you find examples for how that's also true another turnaround is i'm unkind to myself mm-hmm. so it, i got to i get to wake up then to the fact that we're the same you know and to any degree that unkindness exists in me, then naturally I'm going to see it out in the world because I have projected it there. Yeah. That anything that is unresolved in my own mind is projected out into the ex- apparent external so that I get to see it. I remember when I listened to Loving What Is on as an audiobook, um, there was one thing which I couldn't quite digest, which was that there was some woman who had been sexually abused as a child or a very young girl by her father or her uncle or somebody. And, you know, Byron Cater took her through the questions and then, you know, tried to turn it, turn it around to say, I abused him. Or, and correct me if I'm, if I'm not remembering this right, but I couldn't understand how an innocent child could in any way have been the culprit there to any extent, you know? Yeah, well, and that's that's the exact point in that book where uh, um, a lot of people reportedly, uh, to, to me, have report that's where they, they abandon the work, so to speak. Um, uh-huh. And I'd love you to listen to that again, Rick. I love to listen to that over and over again. So I mm-hmm. believe um, I want you to experience what I experience naturally. So I want that for you. Um, and what happens in that dialogue is Katie asks her, what was your part? So mm-hmm. we're just looking at turnarounds. We don't know what they are. So the right. opposite is I abused him. And then Katie's question to her is, what was your part? To a little nine-year-old girl, what was your part? And she eventually said, after that happened, I could get anything I wanted from him. So now he Was she blackmailing this, him? Uh, yes. Yeah, yes. like I'm gonna she, well, tell if you, it, if you don't give me something. Well, it, it, well, I didn't get it like it, that. It was like that, Rick. It was more like that was our uh, way, our only way to get love, approval, and and uh, and appreciation. That was our only way to get the love that we were seeking, and we would do it at any price. So even a little nine-year-old girl would would sacrifice that that kind of pain to get the love that she was seeking. So she, um, her part was she did that, seeking something from him, and then after it happened, she could get whatever she wanted from him. But so then it became, um, a, a, it became strategy, a tool. So, so the implication was that she was a willing participant in order to get what she wanted. At at some level. Now it also didn't miss that he could have done. I don't know if you can see my hands, but like she, he could have done this much, you know, like a uh-huh. thousand fold. He did mm-hmm. that much harm right. and she did this much. Right. 100% of her pain mm-hmm. was in the part that she had. Yeah. So did he do a thousand fold over? Yes. She did one teeny little part of it. And that's where 100% of her pain is because mm-hmm. she had, she had not, um, that was not okay with her to do that. 
So would you say that there really could not be any circumstance in which the victim is is totally innocent, that, that we're always culpable to some extent? I don't know. I, yeah. I know that I, what I believe is whatever action and reaction we have is thought-based. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not even so much for me, Rick, what happens. It's like, what was I thinking that caused that? Mm-hmm. And then I get to work at the level of the cause. And when I question what thought caused it, then I can see what hurts and what doesn't. And then I'm enlightened to that. And then I can stop hurting me, and I can stop hurting you to the same degree. So in other words, it's kind of... I'm, I'm just pursuing this a bit so I totally understand what you're saying so you're saying it's kind of fruitless to try to analyze the occurrence that may have happened 40 years ago and determine what the percentages of blame and whatnot may be because you really have no control over something that happened 40 years ago what happened happened but what you do have control over is how you're living with that now how you're reacting to the 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 impression of that now is that what you're saying yes and that's the one thing we can control is our internal world so i'm still reacting to what happened 40 years ago just like it's happening again today and it's over yeah now and i can say it shouldn't have happened shouldn't have happened shouldn't have happened and i lose to every time i tell myself and believe it that it shouldn't have happened and it did happen i'm stressed right so the rape is over in this case, a rape is over, and I'm still raping me over and over and over every time I play it through my mind. And the yeah. mind's got the picture made up in graphic detail, showing it to us, and we're reacting to what the mind has, has, um, is, is, is projecting instead of to what's in front of us, which is in this moment now, there's no problem here. You know, woman on chair. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's good that we're dwelling on this because, you know, without, you know, if you read things like that, it can seem a little heartless or cold or something um, to, to, you know, say that the girl had some kind of responsibility for the circumstance. But, I mean, if, you know, well, you just said it very beautifully, if, if we can somehow, well, woman sitting on chair, if we can somehow just be in the present and not relive a thousand times something things that have happened throughout our lives then we're free right we are exactly and it doesn't change what happened right. um and no no amount of praying wishing wailing is going to change what's over did you ever hear that zen story about the uh, two monks an older one and a younger one walking along and they get to a stream and there's a a beautiful young girl that is waiting by the side of the stream and she wants to cross it's a muddy thing or something and she can't get across and so the older monk picks her up and they walk across the stream and put, he puts her down and they keep on walking and a couple hours later the young monk finally can't handle it anymore says what did you do we're not you know we're not supposed to touch women and yet you picked up that beautiful young girl and the older monk says oh are you still carrying her i put her down on the other side of the stream <laughs> That's exactly it, and I love that. I'm glad you told it again. I love hearing you tell it, and it, that's from when I where I read that was from a New Earth Eckhart Tolle's work. Oh, he told it too. Yeah, that's an old it's story. Written, it's written in that book. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> and uh. and that's what we're doing, Rick. Whatever it is, even a minute ago, you know, if it's like if you took on shame, for example, for not hitting the pause button, 
Yeah, like, oh, what's you know, we, Martha going to think of me? I wasted yes. 10 minutes of her time. <laughs> yeah, like that's possible, honey. Like that's yeah. not possible for you to do it. And the reality is the thought did not come to you. Press the pause button. That's all that happened. That's, yeah. And you cannot have a thought that you don't have. There's no amount of efforting, wishing, strategizing that's going to make a thought appear to you that doesn't appear to you. And instead of just staying in that reality, we take it on like we're inept or incompetent or we got shame and guilt about it. And then we worry what somebody's going to think about us versus just seeing our own innocence in that. And and the fact is that a thought didn't come to you to push the pause button. Yeah, I, I did a whole interview with this lovely lady named Betty Ensign, and uh, we went on for two hours. And then when I went to process the video, I discovered that there was no audio, that mic hadn't worked. So I thought, darn it, it was such a good interview, we're going to do it again. So I set it all up again the next night, and we went, did another two-hour interview, and I went to process it, and the audio worked fine for 20 minutes, and then it stopped working. <laughs> so we, wow. we lost that one, too. I've got to do it again, actually, because she had such a good story. But, uh, but I must admit, you know, I, f I felt a little bummed, but I, I kind of was like the duck in Eckhart Tolle's story. I, I shook my wings a bit and thought, okay, yes. move on, you know, whatever. Maybe there's a reason why the first two ones didn't work. <laughs> yeah, we'll drop the maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. and there's the reason, whether we ever understand it or not. And we can spend the rest of our life uh, assessing it, evaluating it, talking about it, or being in, being bummed about it. Or we can just notice it's what is and then go on about our life. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't going to bring back the interview for me to beat myself up over it. Well, that's really wise, yeah. Yeah. Um, we we mentioned Eckhart Tolle a few times. Does he, um, I, I've heard actually that he, on some occasions, actually prescribes Byron Katie's work as a sort of a way of doing what he, what he you know, arriving at, a technique for arriving at the state that he so eloquently, um, you know, describes. As, uh, yes, being, and that's being in my... The present and, I'm sorry, that's my interpretation. That's my interpretation too, and, and I didn't mean to interrupt you, Rick. Um, that's my interpretation too, and that's how I've heard it said: is that what uh, by um, Eckhart Tolle is what to do, and Byron Katie is how to do it. Yeah. yeah. So it's the, it's the how to do it, and we've you know we've read for centuries what to do, mm -hmm. and and now it's time to do the work. <laughs> and, there's a reason it's called the work. Yeah, that's well, good because I mean a lot of teachers, even contemporary ones, um, are very good at describing the state they're in, but they're kind of offering that description as a way to be in that state. But unless you're in that state, it doesn't work. You know, I mean, you you can't just sort of. It's like a man on a mountaintop describing the view. It doesn't help the people who are way down the mountain someplace. Precisely, and you need, and you need my climbing techniques. My and my short answer for that is it's just more blah blah blah. Yeah. So, yeah. and and which is what I say in workshops that and don't try to believe what I'm saying because it's just my blah blah blah. Until you take this on and experience it yourself, then you've got another theory to talk about instead yeah. of like really taking this in and seeing what happens, what shifts in you when you really question what you're thinking. Yeah. Now you know Eckhart Tolle is. Um, He's kind of a mystic in a way, in the sense that he's not just describing a philosophy, he's having an experience, and he's speaking from his experience. He's, you know, in a certain level of aware awareness or awakeness or whatever. And by, I, I get the same thing with Byron Katie reading her books, especially that one, A Thousand Names for Joy, which she, in which she, 
use the Tao Te Ching to kind of comment on her own experience um, and elaborate it. And it's a very beautiful book. Um, in fact, to me, it was the most readable of her books. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, what we are talking about here is not just sort of, uh, not merely a, a way of learning to deal more uh, smoothly with mundane issues and concerns. Um, we're talking really about enlightenment, as far as I can tell, uh, ultimately. Um, and, you know, but uh, we're talking about a teaching from a woman who spontaneously became enlightened or became awakened. Um, so I guess what I'm leading to is, you know, to what extent has that become a reality for you? Let me ask that one first. Well, I, there's nothing been spontaneous for me. I can mm -hmm. tell you that, and it, that's also not my understanding of what happened with Katie. It's also it's described as she had an experience of where she saw that there's no her, and that something was seeing through her eyes, and that when she believed her thoughts, she suffered, and when she didn't, she didn't. And then she worked diligently on that for years after that, sitting alone uh. and, and asking these questions. So she had quite a trek from the way I understand it, including how this work was formulated and what it was like to lose orientation and identification to where people that show up and say, I'm your family, and you don't have a reference for what family is or who these people yeah. are, and you just go with them because you don't know, you don't see a reason why not to go with them. Um, so mine has, has been a, a, a practice. Mine has been a systematic writing down and questioning my own mind and thought and then facilitating other people to do that. And while I facilitate other people to do that, I'm also doing my work when I do that. And mm -hmm. I feel like that I've had a, a lot of grace in that, that there's things that I never worked on, so to speak, people I never worked on that um, stopped bothering me things stop bothering me. I stop being affected by things that I've been affected by my whole life as a result of me doing this work. And that's what I would describe then as a very um, high level exponential effect of this, that it's not a 51%, 52%, 53%. It was a 51% and then a 61% and then an 85%. And the, 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 the more I do it, um, the better it gets. And the more my mind clears, the more energy I have and the more sanity I have and then the more joy I have. So to talk about living a life of joy is one thing and to actually live a life of joy is something else. And well, you seem to have a lot of energy. You basically live out of a suitcase as far as I can tell. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's traveling it's all over. It's It's true. It's yeah. true, and 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 it makes no sense. Um, rationally, it makes no sense how uh, how I physically can do what I do. Hmm. Well, but you love what you're doing, you know, and and I think when people love what they're doing, they have abundant energy. I think <clears> you're right about it, yeah. and that's that's my experience here too. And I'm more excited. I remember hearing Katie say a few years ago that. Eventually, you know, uh, you may go a, a day and not have much of a problem. You go a week, you haven't had much of a problem. You go a month, and then eventually you go years without a problem, and then eventually you can't even find a problem. Mm. And I remember thinking, oh, horse patootie. Oh, <laughs> give me a break. Yeah. you got to be kidding me. And I can tell you now, this a few years later, that I have a glimpse of what that means. That Sure. 
I have a glimpse of not experiencing things as problems that I never would have believed that that would be possible. Well, it's probably more than a glimpse. I mean, when's the last time you really felt like you had a problem? Um, I have I have slight offs. Um, yesterday, um, I had an actual concern about what somebody would think of me, mm-hmm. and that felt very strange. Yeah. And I was very excited about it. I can tell you that because I knew that there's something there for me. So years ago, it would have been bummed. I'd been bummed like, oh, brother, something bothers me. And now it's more like, wow, what is that? It's like what an is, opportunity. Like an opportunity, literally, literally that, yeah. literally that. And um, it's it's like there's something there for me. And it's like the breadcrumbs back to myself, uh, my, my trail back to self. And I mean self with a capital S, Rick, a trail back to God, back to reality mm-hmm. of where I've I've got lost out in the illusion again. Yeah. So it was subtle, and the more subtle it's gotten in my life, the more powerful it is. So mm. I'm very much more open now to it. Um, when it comes, it's 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 exciting in some way that um, there's something left of me, and it, that's that's a marker, that's a pointer to say turn here, like g- g- go in here and sit and see what's happening. That's great. I mean, that's a very refreshing. I think, uh, that's one thing. If, if people only remember one thing from this interview, that, that might be a good one to remember, which is that anytime you feel like you have a problem, it's it's an opportunity to you know see where you've got some kind of shadow work to do within yourself. You know, some kind of place where you haven't shown the light yet. Exactly, and Rick, if we understood that all that shadow—I mean, even that terminology—you know, our shadow work, our underworld—if uh-huh. we really understood that, that's all just thinking. Hmm. That it's not the essence of who we are. That it's a thought that caused all that. You yeah. know, like I'm not good enough. Something's wrong with me. You know, mm-hmm. I'm unlovable. Life is hard. Like fill in the blank. That all that caused all of that was a thought that we haven't questioned. So it's very doable. Uh, to just have one thought at a time and then write it down and ask the questions and turn it around. Yeah. I wanted to just uh, revert back to something we were talking about a minute ago. It seems like, from what I read, Byron Katie did have a, a kind of a sudden, unexpected awakening. She was sitting in a halfway house and a cockroach crawled across her foot and all of a sudden there was this awakening. And similarly, uh, Eckhart Tolle, you know, sitting, he was like on the verge of suicide practically and he, he's just questioned you know, wait a minute, if I can't live with myself, who is, are there two of me? Who is this I with whom I cannot live? And next morning woke up and it was a whole new situation. Uh, but both of them, uh, you know, had several years at least of, of kind of working through a lot of things and integrating and making sense of it all. I mean, Byron Katie in her way, I, uh, Eckhart sitting on a, a park bench feeding the pigeons, you know, just sort of <laughs> gradually sort of making sense of it all. And I think that that is the exception rather than the rule the norm, that that kind of abrupt awakening followed by years of integration. I think most of us are proceeding incrementally, you know, layer after layer, working things out, as you've been describing. And and I think so, too. And it is the layer after layer now just seems a, le- a lot less um, arduous, a lot less kind of intimidating because it simply is the, the only layer there is is a thought layer. Thought caused it all. Thought is the cause of it all. So um, that's that's not as as ominous. That we just see that oh, if 
thinking is the cause here. Everything else is the effect of that. Then we don't have to spend too much t more time in the effects. And to the degree that we understand that thinking caused it all, like what are we going to react to? That all that's ever happening is a thought appearing. Thought appearing, thought appearing, thought appearing. Then we, we, we can't have much reaction to that. Hmm. Some people say that the, the the more difficult stuff is the last to go, you know, the deeper, darker stuff, because if it were easier, it would have gone sooner. And that, you know, we kind of, but you're kind of saying that it's getting easier and easier for you. Or maybe it's easier to deal with deeper stuff, you know, because you, you know, I mean, one man's uh, one man can lift 100 pounds easily and, and another can hardly lift 10. But if you're strong enough, then the 100, it's all relative. Well, it's also meaningless. How so? What do you mean? Uh, in what way? <laughs> um, there's, there's no, there's no reality. There's no meaning to. All the concepts are made up, so uh -huh. even concepts like deep, right? Like that's deep. It's like mm -hmm. we made that up. We don't okay. know what that is. Yeah. And then we react to a concept like, oh, that's deep. And how do you react when you think that's deep? Hmm. And it's like, oh, my goodness. Oh, and it's like, who would you be if you didn't have a concept of deep? Mm -hmm. If we understood that it, it, it hit, that all the meaning that deep has is what I have applied to it. I made it all up. Right. So it's, it's a blank slate. It's a blank field. It's a... And, and I'm projecting on it my own meanings and then reacting to the meanings that I've projected as though they're reality. So in other words, what I just said was really sort of overcomplicated speculation. And what you're, what you're doing is just in a very simple way, just sort of questioning thoughts as they arise and, you know, if and seeing how substantial they are. And, and you know, then they, they kind of dissolve and... and Yes, you know, as, as yeah. you question them, as you question them, yeah, it's like, yeah, they leave you, they, they, they dissolve. Right, right. And then you believe them less and less. You know, an yeah. example I often use that's been meaningful to people, I'm so struck about what, what really is meaningful to people. Like if I said to you, your hair's green, <laughs> how, does that, how does that affect you? Not at all, obviously, because no. I know it isn't, and unless you there's laugh. something wrong with you your eyes. Yes, you spontaneously laugh, like it was just just joy in you, like oh, like she thinks my hair is green. Yeah. And if and so we don't believe it, so it doesn't affect us. Right. And then I could say you're the worst excuse for an interviewer I've ever seen. Uh huh. And, and if I thought you were serious, I'd probably think, oh my God, you know. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you just grabbed yeah. your heart, our neck Yeah, yeah. I'd feel like my my solar plexus would tingle or something. And, yes. So that's yeah. a that's an exact measure of how we believe a thought. Mm -hmm. So it, and then that's also an indicator to that I still believe that because I had a visceral reaction to that. I had a body reaction to that. My body is a feedback feedback mechanism that tells me I believe that. And then it then I get busy with, oh, write that down, ask four questions, turn it around. Mm -hmm. And then eventually that can affect me. You know, I could say you're the worst excuse for an interviewer and you would just say, I've had that thought also. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I I think that too sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, okay, if she wants me to be a better interviewer, I want me to be a better interviewer. It's like 
Yeah. What what suggestions do you have for me? Give me yeah, some feedback. And read then, some books on it or something. Watch Larry yeah, King. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So and to the degree then that we get that it's all just thinking, like we, we couldn't react to much. We would just mm. see this as a thought appearing. And there's no thought that I can have that you haven't had. There's no new thought in the whole world. So what would we be afraid of? Yeah. Like the worst Sometimes there's I a could, certain I'm sorry, go ahead. The worst I could think about you, you already think about you. Yeah. So, so we can live fearlessly. Sometimes there's a certain amount of psychic energy though in 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 infused in, 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 in you know, like if someone is yelling and screaming at you, it's not just the the meaning of their words that is impacting you, but there's this sort of like stressful, you know, you know what I mean? I mean, my father was very abusive. He he used to drink a lot and yell at my mother all night long and, you know, eventually drove her into a mental hospital. And um, there was a lot of, you know, it wasn't just the content of what he was saying. It was the sort of the atmosphere that was created, <coughs> you know, with all that anger and, and, and negativity. It's just sort of... Um, so how do you deal with that as opposed to just the content where, you know, you, let's say you didn't just say I was a bad interviewer, you started screaming at me and, um, you know, there was all this sort of emotional, psychic energy coming through. Well, it just wouldn't have anything to do with you, Rick. Mm -hmm. My my screaming is an effect of my own thinking. Mm -hmm. So if you understood that, you couldn't react to that either. And then your mind would be clear, like, I don't like this, and then you could just disconnect. Yeah, you could true. hang up on me. You could say, <laughs> well, that didn't turn out quite like I had in mind. She's not, she's not suitable for my show. So you'd have, you'd be empowered to do what felt right for you to do, and you'd understand that all, all of the effects coming out of me is an, is a result of my own thinking. Yeah. You know, just like if I somehow gave you the look, you know, I just like <laughs> gave you the look somehow. It's like that look on my face is an effect of my own thought. It's nothing to do with you. It could never be anything to do with you. And we're so identified with this, you know, with this ourself, we think with this thing. We're so identified that we think it's got something to do with us. So then whatever look is on their face, we take it personally like, oh, that's me that they're looking at. And it's like, no, the look on their face is in a result, is an effect of the thought that just occurred to them. Which could be, you know, you're ugly, you're fat, you're inadequate, you're whatever. So whatever thought hit them, that look on their face is, a, is an effect of that. And it, it, it has nothing to do with me. Hmm. It's easy to get identified. I mean, even going to a movie, and you know it's a movie. You know, but if it's a really suspenseful movie, you th you know, you're sitting there and you're chewing your fingers. You say, don't open that door. You know, don't don't go there. Don't do this. And you're, you're I'm sure if they hooked you up to various instruments, you know, your heart would be beating faster. And, you know, even though, you you, you know, you can think anytime this is only a movie, but we react to things, you know, we get sucked in. That's exactly it. And so the life is a movie also. Yeah, exactly. And we've lost ourselves in it. It's no different. We got the same stimulation in the body that we would be just like it's happening to us and it's it's all thought caused. Yeah. So we've just we've 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 forgotten that it's a movie. And even if we remember though, you know, even if we know it, there's still we still re react, we still get caught in. Yes. Like you like you said, you know, you get blurred over. <laughs> yes. And and until we 
don't, then our, our thoughts are going to run the show. Yeah. I know people, you know, especially living here in Fairfield, who have been meditating for 40 years and stuff. Um, and, you know, very often it's like there's this analogy that you can move a table by pulling any of its legs and all the other legs are going to come along. And a lot of times people feel like, well, if I just do this, you know, this going into a state of inner silence, everything else is going to work itself out. But you, you very often find people who've been doing that for decades who still have a lot of baggage and uh, a lot of stuff that, <laughs> that, you know, maybe it would be good if they pulled two legs of the table simultaneously, keep doing their meditation if they want, but also look at this, look at that, change, learn how to change one's thinking as in, in the way you've described, might move the table along a lot more easily. Well, and that was my experience. And I still, I consider the work a meditation. And I used mm -hmm. to sit in, in meditation and had mantra and uh -huh. that and would consider it peaceful and, and it was gentle and I felt renewed by it. And the minute, even before my eyes was open, the infinite mind was recreating itself. Mm. So even in the meditation, um, there was a little peace sometimes because uh, it would be a thought like I need a pillow or, um, oh, somebody should be here meditating with me or how long's it been or is yeah. this really going to work or, and it's <laughs> like, um, so instead of, of, I found something through questioning the mind that was meditative and that had a result that was mind blowing to me and that is um, effective and sustainable Hmm. and and uh, accessible. It doesn't require anything except to, a to ask the question and then to answer it if you really want to get to the other side. You mentioned, the you know, truth. when you st when you started in on this, you, you moved, you felt like you were moving rather quickly, 51%, 61%, 81%, like that. Um, do you feel now, um, you know, that to a great extent, universal awareness or pure awareness or vastness or whoever, whatever terminology we want to use has become quite uh, very much part of your living reality as a result of all this? I do. I don't know what percentage and I don't believe that um, I don't believe that just because I'm experiencing it right now that it's going to last. Right. I mean, I cannot know the future. I don't know that somebody won't knock on the door here in a minute, you know, and stick a gun in my rib cage. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how I would react to that. I just know that ever how I react to that would be based on the thought that I was having at the time. So it's got nothing to do with the gun or the person. It's to do with the thought that I'm having. Hmm. And that that is um, that's solid ground for me. Yeah, you know, as you speak, uh, somehow the metaphor comes to mind of a musician tuning their instrument before playing. It's almost like this whole process you've been describing is a way of, of kind of tuning oneself, you know, so that when we play, it doesn't sound bad. You know, it <laughs> sounds yeah. like it's supposed to sound. That's the way I see it, too, Rick. And then when we, when the mind takes over again or I'll lose myself again, then I'm not, is it, I'm out of tune. And if I can hear myself, then I'm going to restore retune. my tuning. I'm going to retune, attune, attune, and atone uh, before I proceed very much. Yeah. Yeah. I used to play in a band. I was a drummer, and, and very often between songs, the guitar players would you know, have to just tune up a little bit again because it had gotten off slightly. Yes. You know. And and we're going to get off with just one thought that goes unquestioned. 
yeah. know, it really is that simple. It's not as easy as it sounds sometimes. It, but it's like it, it, there's really just two paths. Thought appears, and then you either believe it and suffer, or you question it and don't. Mm. So, and, and I call it peace or pain, and I also call it go within or go without. Yeah. So it's which is it going to be? Which is it going to be? That's great. So um, having heard all this, if a person thinks, well, this sounds like an interesting approach, I could get into this, uh, what should they do? www.thework.com, T-H-E-W-O-R-K.com. Okay. Free resources, free audio streams, video streams, all the books, excerpts from the book, a page of certified facilitators, uh, a, a helpline where people serve for free to facilitate people through the work. Hmm. And um, then the books, Loving What Is, Thousand Names for Joy, um, I Need Your Love, Is That True? It's got great hmm. exercises in it and the practices are laid out there. And if they want to work with me directly, they can contact me at Martha Creek net, and I work on a love offering basis. That means they pay whatever they want to pay, and I facilitate mm -hmm. them based on appointments. So um, there's it's it's available 100% available to anybody who wants it, free. That's that's great. Um, well, I always feel when I do these interviews, and and this one in particular, that I'm enjoying this so much I could go on all night thinking up questions and talking because it's so nice. But um, I think we've really we've covered it pretty well. Um, is there anything you feel like we haven't covered that you'd like to throw in there to, before we conclude? I'm especially grateful for you, to you, and for whatever is motivating you to do this. Um, I'm, I'm especially grateful for that. And I'm privileged to sit with you. And I delight at um, the pebble in the pond here and where the waves may go and no mm. different than how we met in the first place i mean the, the 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 rare chance that i would be in fairfield iowa and there i am there you are and here we are today and yeah what we're giving here is um is meaningful and i appreciate it well thanks martha what motivates me is just the joy of it i mean i just enjoy this so much and uh not only i mean even if it were just you and i talking and no one was ever going to hear it i really enjoy this and I and I really enjoy tuning into a different person each week, and there's so many lovely people out there. But I also enjoy, you know, when people, other other people are inspired by it and benefit from it. And and you know, each each person I speak to has a different, you know, slightly different way of going of, of presenting themselves. And and you know, I'll get I'll do an interview like this, and I'll get feedback from one person saying you shouldn't have interviewed that person they were lousy and then 10 minutes later an email will come in saying oh that was just what i needed to hear yeah. <laughs> yeah. so i like to mix it up and and i think it yours was, has been a very beautiful contribution thank you for that it was interesting to have questions about my story about my mm -hmm. life and my childhood and it was um it was fun today to tell it and um, to not diminish it in some way like that's a story, that's a story, that's a story to just answer the question and it's also very uh, humbling and it's very I have a great deal of gratitude that even as I was telling that story that um, I didn't believe for a second that um, it's who I am right, <laughs> so, right. <laughs> uh, that, and that's how we know you know that's how we can test how much of this has taken hold of us. Like if yeah. we can answer the questions and tell the story with still some investment in somebody getting it, hearing it versus 
you know, it's it's so irrelevant, really. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, you have an interesting story, you know, story, even though it's a story, and people like stories. <laughs> yeah. And I think they're illustrative. They're they're edifying, you know, and you and a lot of people can, you know, they can relate to different facets of different people's stories and say well you know I can relate to that and and so maybe there's hope for me <laughs> yes and I get a lot of feedback about that so I'm dedicated to telling it uh, for that reason that it's yeah it's gonna it's it's beneficial yeah, yeah. that's actually the the little subtitle of this whole program is and, and the title of it Buddha at the gas pump the implication being that you you know you very Awakened people in ordinary circumstances, and the 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 subtitle is um, interviews with ordinary spiritually awakened people. Uh, and of course, I guess ultimately everyone's ordinary, but we tend to kind of put people on pedestals and feel like whatever they've got is unattainable, you know. And I couldn't pos I couldn't possibly be like Eckhart Tolle or Byron Katie or somebody. But you know, the fact is, um, you know, we're all bozos on this bus, and. <laughs> Yes, we can. and yeah. and we're one thought away from it. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. One one thought unquestioned. Yeah, yeah and that's another thing. I mean, we're carrying on a little bit, and we were about to conclude, but it were, were some more good stuff here, which is that many people feel like, oh, you know, it's just not going to happen to me in this lifetime. It's so far away, you know, maybe decades from now, maybe on my deathbed or something, I can have this kind of liberation or insight. But that one thought away phrase is very, I think... Um, encouraging for people yeah, me too yeah good well thanks martha um so let me just make a couple of concluding statements here that i always make um which is that depending on how you found this interview uh, there's um, one place to go if you want to sort of find all of them um there's batgap.com which is an acronym for buddha at the gas pump so that's b-a-t-g-a-p.com um, go there and you'll see all the ones that I've been doing and will do and you can sign up to get an email if you like um, to be notified every time a new one is put up. Uh, it's also available in podcast form if you don't want to sit in front of your computer and any more than you already do. You can get this on your iPod or your MP3 player and uh, listen while you're walking the dog or whatever. And um, there's a little donate button there, uh, which if you feel the impulse to click it, go ahead, don't resist. Uh, I just had to shell out a bunch of money to buy some more equipment for the, my dear friend, Ralph Preston, whom I really should mention at the end of every single one of these interviews. We were buddies in high school and I haven't seen him since, but we've been working together on this project. And uh, he does all the post-production work and spends more time than I do probably, uh, you know, getting all this in usable form. So. Uh, uh, and there's a link to his website on on uh, my website, which you can check out. He he had a stroke several years ago and it made a remarkable recovery and is doing stuff to help you know other people who have had strokes. So wonderful guy. Uh, so in any case, uh, that's my what I want to say in conclusion. I thank you for watching and I will see you next time. <laughs>